Today's passage is Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 to 29. can be found on page 6 of the Pew Bible. Hear now the word of the Lord, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, infallible and inerrant. The sons of Noah, Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the world, the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and saw their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out that his youngest son, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will be <laughs> the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the, the God of Shem. May Canaan be to the son of Shem, to the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before I get into the sermon, I will share with you you know, the verses are Genesis 9, 18 through 29. We just heard them read. And when I told Peggy the title of my sermon, The Sin and the Curse of Ham, she said, well, this is obviously a post-Christmas sermon. And at, fir at first I didn't get it. And then I thought, yeah, we did eat a lot of ham. <laughs> so uh, I am now on a stricter diet and less ham. <clears throat> Let me pray for us as we move into the teaching and the worship through the Word of God. Holy Father, we lift up, I lift up your Word symbolically to say, thank you, this is your Word given to us that we might know you. And today there are several things in our text that are hard. I pray for our hearts and our souls that we would receive your word just as it is your word, that we would check our emotions about things according to what your word has said about those things and not what we think. We admit that what we think is flawed by sin and a sin nature. And so we surrender to you. We place ourselves under the authority of your written word. May we understand it better that we may know you and worship you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me, if you would, <clears throat> at Genesis 9, 18 and 19. And let's reread those two texts as we begin to look at what God is saying to us here. In Genesis 9, 
18 and 19, it says, The sons of Noah came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then notice, and this is an important notice, we're going to come back to it. Ham was the father of Canaan. He gets a tagline, the other two do not. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. And that's an interesting statement. From those people, if we believe the Bible, all of us come from those people. Do you know what that does to racism or what it should do? We are more alike than we dare admit sometimes. Next week, I'm going to talk more about that as we get into this. But for now, I'll leave it there. Let me say, Shem, I just want to give you a little bit of an idea of who these people were. The sons of Noah. Shem means fame. The, he fathered the Semitic people, which included the Jews, but it wasn't just the Jews. And he and they started a language which we call the Semitic language. So that's Shem. That's a little interesting little bio on him. And Japheth means, may he have space, or may God enlarge. And when we get to the the only words that Noah says in all of the Bible are in our text today, and it is the curse and the blessing of his sons. And when we get to that, you're going to see why Japheth was given this blessing and why his name means uh, may he have space or may God enlarge. There, uh, Japheth's descendants are said to have spread throughout the coastlands around the Mediterranean and they lived in harmony with his older brother Shem's people this is the very first hint in the Bible that God is also going to bring in the Gentiles and redeem them and so part of what Noah says later in our text is a curse on one son and a blessing on the other two and all three will become mighty nations. Interesting concept. So let me give you the big picture. If you haven't been here, this is what we've been talking about as we've been going through Genesis. Noah's sons, we just mentioned, they had their wives and they accompanied Noah on the ark and eight people total escaped the flood that wiped out potentially 750 million people which were on the face of the earth at the time after the flood Noah's sons and their wives and their offspring and this is why I wanted to make this they repopulated the earth God gave them a command to go and repopulate the earth so every person that is alive today grows out of this little family which as Christians ought to speak to our hearts that we are family whether we have a different color race hair type whatever it is we all are coming from the same people and so 
The offspring of Shem inherited the promised land, and they displaced the Canaanites. So Shem's descendants become Joshua and Israel, the people that Moah led through the desert, Moses led through the desert. God told Moses, you you shall not go into the promised land, but Joshua will lead. And those people that they took over, if you trace it all the way back to our text today, was Shem's people. Shem's people went in as Israelites and conquered his brother's people, which was Ham and Canaan, because Canaan becomes the Canaanites. Just trying to help you understand the the bigger picture. Shem and Jaseph received God's blessing because they had covered their father's drunkenness and his nakedness, while Ham, on the other hand, violated their father, not just by looking at him, but then in going and almost bragging to his brothers about what he had seen. So, as a result, the descendants of Ham were cursed. I said that in that text, you can see, notice, Ham gets a tagline. It says, Ham was the father of Canaan. Why does Ham get this line? I believe it is because Moses is trying to say, I'm going to say a lot about Canaan in this next little bit. And you need to know, Ham was the father of Canaan. So, here's a question for you if you're a Bible student. See if you can answer this one in your own mind. You don't have to speak out because if you speak out, you may not get it right. It's a trick question. Who was or what was Canaan? Was it a person or a place? Anybody want to take a stab? Both, exactly. It was both. Canaan was the son of Ham and the grandson of Noah, who later went on and fathered a nation called the Canaanites. The Canaanites became the enemy of Israel, and they they practiced immoral lifestyles, and here's the worst of it, human sacrifice. They would take babies and slaughter them and sacrifice them to their gods. God eventually wipes them out because of their immoral behavior. Today's passage confirms that Noah would not be the one to solve the problem of sin that had entered the world. Remember in our text it says, the problem with the people is they were evil all the time. There was evil in their hearts all the time. You might think, well, righteous Noah is going to bring us a new savior he's taking us in the ark he's bringing out the eight people they're going to repopulate but we see in our text pretty quickly Noah's not the guy because Noah falls into sin himself he begins to be a farmer tilling the land probably before that based on the commentaries they had already discovered wine Noah creates some wine and he quickly becomes drunk look with me in verses 9 20 and 21 verses 9 20 and 21 
Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and he became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. So Noah has created his own wine, and now he has drank too much of it, and he is drunk. Noah's sin is not, follow me on this, this is important. Noah's sin is not in drinking wine. It's not. Baptists through the years have said drinking any alcohol is sin. The Bible does not condemn him here of drinking wine. Now we're going to get to what he does condemn him of in a moment. But it's not that. Look at, if you would, Psalms 104, 14 through 15, just on this idea of alcohol. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine to gladden the heart of man. It is not saying that wine is wrong here. It's just the opposite. Now, look what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So the apostle Paul is telling Timothy to use, but notice the word, a little wine. Not a lot of wine, but a little. Drinking to excess is an overindulgent heart. And it also is condemned. It's condemned in Ephesians 5.18. We're going to look at that in just a minute. John Christendom says, and he, is, uh, he died in four, uh, 407 A.D. He's one of the fathers of the faith supposedly a silver-tongued preacher. This is what he said about this issue, and you should have it on the screen. Dreadful sins arise not from wine as much from intemperate attitudes of human depravity that undermine the benefit that should naturally come from it. So there can be, in moderation, a benefit that comes from it. I think that's well said. But here's the other side, and there is a other side that is very important that I bring up. We all know alcohol is a slippery slope, and it can be very dangerous and often deadly, and it has destroyed no small number of lives and families. But we should not be so black and white because I think life is gray and nuanced to say that all alcohol is wrong and if you're drinking alcohol you're just a sinner and you're going to hell that's just not the case that's not what the Bible says and so we need to be biblical but we also need to be wise and wisdom would say alcohol can be a very slippery slope and it can destroy lives. And we need to be 
oh, oh, so careful in our use of it. Okay. Noah committed the latter era. He overdrank and became drunk and then exposed himself in his tent. We know that getting drunk is a sin because Ephesians 5.18 says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't go around using the word debauchery very often. So the word debauchery is excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. If we drink excessively and we get drunk, that is sin before a holy God. Okay? So Noah does this. Noah sins. He drinks too much. He passes out in his tent. Ham, his son, his last son, comes in. He sees him. And then he does what? Think about this. He doesn't cover him. He sees him. It's shameful. He runs out. And he goes and tells his brothers. And he says, you're not going to believe, you know, what's going on up there. I just walked in dad's tent. He's buck naked. Got nothing on. You ought to come up here and see this. It's a sight. And that is his sin. He is making light of his father's shame. And that in Israel is taboo. And in our country, it ought to be taboo. Think about it like this. And this is a practical situation. You ever been to a dinner, dinner party with a couple that maybe in their marriage they're not doing so well? And there comes an opportunity at the dinner party where the husband might say something, or the wife, either way. And the wife uses that as a chance to kind of expose her husband and get back at him so she says something you know that's really hard for everybody else in the room and it makes everybody else uncomfortable makes him look like an idiot and she exposes him we know intuitively that isn't good same thing could go the other way the husband takes a jab at the wife everybody at the dinner party is like "Ooh, that that's terrible they, I believe, it's very similar. We are called to cover, much like the sons went in and covered their father's nakedness. You know what's a beautiful thing in a marriage? It is, a, it is beautiful. If you've ever been in the know and in a situation and you heard a conversation going on, let's say at a party, and you knew this man had made a mistake but then you got to hear the wife cover his mistake and try to protect her man it's just christ-like because she could easily say the truth yeah he does he does do that but she covers him what a beautiful thing what a pleasing thing and it says in the scriptures to cover an offense is honoring to the Lord. The brothers come in and they walk backwards with a sheet and they cover their father out of respect. And so 
The respect that God orders us to give our parents explains why Ham is cursed by his father. To not respect your parents is a big deal. And it was even bigger with the Israelites. It should be just as big with us. But it is not. And so, the only words we have from Noah, let's look at them. Genesis 9, 25 through 28. Genesis 9, 25 through 28. This is what Noah, he wakes up and he says this. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord and the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. And then it's kind of interesting how this ends. It says, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and then he died. It's almost like he wakes up from this stupor. It's not this way, but it's almost like he does. Pronounces this, and then he dies. And here's the question of the text that I wonder if you have even already asked it. I almost want to see a show of hands. Why did Noah pronounce a curse upon Canaan? Wasn't it Ham that went in and saw his father? But yet the curse is on Canaan. Anyway, Noah, his words come true. This is a prophetic utterance from Noah, the, the, what we just read. So I have to believe, and scholars believe, that Noah was inspired to say what he said because all of these things came true. But back to my question, why Canaan and not Ham? In my study, I realized that there's nothing in the text. All we can do is speculate, and there's been 2,000 years of speculation about why the, the curse went to the son of Ham and not to Ham himself. Here's some of what the scholars are saying. Noah refused to curse his son since God had already blessed Ham in Genesis 9-1. So some say the reason he didn't, bless, didn't curse Ham was because God had already blessed him in 9-1. Other scholars say this. Noah could see that Canaan also possessed the carnal and materialistic nature of his father, Ham. And he realized it would only get worse in the coming generations. And so he curses Canaan. Also, another theologian says it this way. Canaan was not only the father of the Canaanites, and this is true. He became also the father of of the Amorites, he became the father of the Jebusites, the Sidians, and the Phoenicians. All of them ended up going to war with Israel at some time in the future. And so, if Noah was given a premonition or insight from God through the Holy Spirit that Ham's descendants were going to be the enemies of God's chosen people 
it would make sense that he would curse them. And indeed, he did. However, all, I, all of that is speculation. We, we really don't know at the end of the day why Canaan got the curse and not Ham. But I will say this, and I want to say this to all of us parents and grandparents and those of us that one day may be parents. If you have children or grandchildren, be mindful of the example that you leave. If you aren't careful, they will reproduce your weaknesses and your sins. It is clear that sins can be passed on from generation to generation. I have seen it in my own family. Because of the grace of God, I sometimes think of what God did in my life is allowing me to be a cycle breaker. But I also believe we can be cycle builders. That it doesn't just have to stop at breaking a heinous cycle of sin, but we can also build something very beautiful. So, let's ask this question to the text. Exactly again, what was Ham's sin? Ham gazed with satisfaction on his father, his righteous father, and his shame. And then he went and gloated with his brothers about it. Some theologians in my study this week have suggested, because the curse is so hard, in a minute I'm going to tell you how, how that curse played out, and you're going to see just how hard it was. Some have suggested that it couldn't have been just seeing Noah and not doing anything about it. It must have been more heinous than that, like rape, like he raped his own father, or that he castrated him, because it does say when Noah wake up, wakes up, he realizes what Ham has done to him. And so theologians are playing with those words, and they're trying to figure out, is that what really happened? Is that why this was so bad? Is that why the curse was so strong? I don't think the text opens the door for this. And so I think a plain, natural reading of the text is he dishonored his father in a horrible way, in a way maybe that in our culture, thousands of years later, we can't really appreciate. But in Leviticus, it says, if you saw your father or mother naked and did not cover them, you could be put to death. And so I know it was different. Let me just say this. Sin in our lives matters. And it has real consequences on your life. And here's the horse part about it. And on your family and your loved ones. When I choose to willfully sin, unlike what my dad used to say to me about his smoking... My smoking isn't hurting anybody but myself. <laughs> now we know secondhand smoke. You know, that wasn't true. Our sin isn't just hurting us. Our sin is hurting the ones that we love deeply. So, for example, 
the curse that Noah put on Ham's son Canaan, it leads to massive sin and death. Theologians call it the harem laws. I'm going to give you a definition of that in just a minute. Well, I can tell you now. It, the harem is a, is a Hebrew word, and it means to devote something to total destruction. You spell it H-E-R-E-M. To devote something to total destruction. And so it's also referred to as harem warfare. In Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 2, this is all part of the curse that happened to Ham and to Canaan. Listen to this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, so basically over in Deuteronomy, God has brought them out of Egypt, brought them through the wilderness for 40 years, and now he's going to bring them into the promised land. God's chosen people are about to go. It Shem's descendants, along with some of Japheth's descendants, and guess who is in and occupying the promised land? Do you know? It's Canaan and his people. This all grew out of some brothers, out of a family. You want to talk about dysfunctional families? This helps me. My family's very dysfunctional. And I read this and I go, well, you know, I'm not the first. Listen to what happens. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Berizzites, the Hivites, the, all these tites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, now here it is. If you're not looking at it, I want you to look at this. Then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. It's one of the most morally troubling passages in all of Scripture. It has to be one of the most frequently heard objections to Christian faith. God spoke these words to the Israelites as they were encamped on the plains of Moab and about to cross the Jordan River into Canaan. God had promised this land to their ancestor Abraham about 500 years earlier, but it would be their responsibility under Joshua's leadership to go in and clear out the local inhabitants who happened to be the descendants of their brothers and take possession of the land. And it's not simply just a forced eviction we're talking about here. It's a slaughter of entire nations, seven of them, down, and this is what you got to catch, down to the last man, woman, and child. Babies. Babies. That's called the harem warfare. God is commanding them to go in and annihilate seven nations 
man, woman, and child. The Old Testament scholar, Westminster professor, Meredith Klein, proposes a theory about this, and the theory is this. He calls it intrusion ethics. Scripture tells us that sin will be punished, and it will be punished to death in Romans 6.23. And ultimately, every unrepentant sinner will face God's judgment. However, Klein says this, in intrusion ethics, it's God giving us a snapshot, a photo of God's final judgment, including, I mean, excuse me, intruding into the flow of history, foreshadowing the reality that is to come. Intrusion ethics is God showing us and foreshadowing the judgment that one day will come on all of mankind. So when God slaughters seven nations, man, woman, and child, He is revealing His wrath against sin. He is intruding into history in such a way to help us wake up and say, oh, he really is a righteous judge, and sin will one day go punished, and I need to do, I need to make my life right with him. Think about it. What was the flood? If nothing else, to use Meredith Klein's words, it was an intrusion of God's judgment. It was a revelation of God's judgment to come. What are, when you turn on the TV, I don't even like watching the, net, the, the local news, but when you turn on the TV and you watch the national news and there's another earthquake that kills thousands of people or there's another tsunami in the Indian Ocean that wiped out 240,000 people in a day, what is that? Meredith Klein would say, and I don't disagree with him, it is an intrusion of God's judgment in time and space in our lives so that we can see I'm not going to be here forever and there is a judgment coming and so Joseph I don't know how to pronounce his last name but he wrote an article in Desiring God and I'm going to close with this he said you need to know five things about God's wrath you need to know five things about God's wrath to really understand God. If you, don't, if you don't understand God's wrath, you don't know God. You just can't. Here's the first one. God's wrath is always just. Romans 2.5, it says this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed because of your hard and impenitent heart. Now, J.I. Packer summarizes God's wrath this way. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, never self-indulgent, never irritable or morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction 
to objective moral evil. In other words, God's wrath isn't like my wrath. You do me wrong, I get mad, I get frustrated with you, I might even lash out at you. God is patient. He is long-suffering. When God does finally bring his wrath, it's just, and it's right. The second thing about God's wrath, God's wrath is to be feared. God's wrath is to be feared. We live in a nation that has zero fear of God. Matthew 25, 46 says this, And these will go away into eternal punishment. This is Jesus speaking. But the righteous into eternal life. He's saying these are going to go away and they're going to be eternally punished. I'm telling you, I don't know what you got for Christmas, but if you ever receive the Lord Jesus Christ, you will escape an eternal destiny in a place called hell. God's wrath, it rained a lot this week, didn't it? And, you know, most of the time, I forget my umbrella. And I have to run outside and get in my car. And by the time I get to my car, I'm soaking wet. And I can't stand to be wet underneath and just have to go through the day wet. Well, if I have my, the wrath of God is like that rain. It is raining on the righteous and the unrighteous. And the wrath of God will rain on everyone. Here's the thing. Those that know Christ have an umbrella. The wrath will fall and it will not soak them. The wrath will not affect them because they are under the righteousness of Christ. Three, God's wrath is consistent from the Old and the New Testament. Many people say, you know, God was more wrathful in the Old Testament. I don't like the Old Testament God. He just seemed to be mean. The New Testament God, well, he's just all loving and all, I feel cozy with him. Well, don't get too cozy. Romans 1.18 says this. This is the New Testament God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The fact of the matter is, is if Jesus is telling the truth and if the Bible's true, the wrath of God is raining down on all unrighteous men. And they will, t- they will suffer, if not turning to Christ, an eternal destiny separated from him. The fourth truth about God's wrath. God's wrath is actually his love in action against sin. It's actually his love in action against sin. Now, this sounds counterintuitive, so hear me out. God is love, the thing that kind of makes us all feel warm and fuzzy. He is love. But the truth is, if you're a parent, you know it is not loving to your child to let them be immoral, to let them do all kinds of wicked things and just be, it's okay, honey. That's not love. Real love 
is when they do that, you tell them, honey, that's wrong. And if you continue on that path, it will destroy your soul, if not your life. And so I'm going to discipline you. That's real love. That's real love. And so God's wrath is really his love on display. Five, and the final one. God's, and this is glorious, God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. That's the whole message of the gospel. And so, why did God curse, really, Canaan and Ham? And I would say, in large part, it's so that you and me and all the other saints could read that story and find out that there is a Messiah. There is a way to escape the wrath of God. And God has provided for his people a way to know him. That's why God, at least in part, gives us these intrusion ethics as Meredith Klein says. And then I'm going to close with this. You may say to yourself, I'm in the middle of something really, really hard. Is God judging me with his wrath? Or is he sanctifying me? What is he doing in this? And uh, R.C. Sproul's mentor, I forget his name, he says it this way. Blessing and suffering in the life of the unbeliever always ends in suffering. Blessing and suffering in the life of an unbeliever always ends in suffering. Blessing and suffering in the life of a believer always ends in blessing. It always ends in blessing. So you might be asking the question, am I being punished? You might be, because God's a holy father. He may be disciplining you. But if you're truly his, it's going to end in blessing. It's going to end in blessing. If you're not his, it's going to end in suffering. Many of us sitting here, and I don't... <laughs> I don't even feel appropriate to even deal with it because I have suffered in maybe class 101, maybe class 102. Some of you, I'm looking at your faces, you got a PhD in suffering. Who am I to talk to you about it? But I want to tell you this because the word says, this is the truth. And if I can tell you this, I don't have to have the PhD in suffering. The word can speak into your heart. All of that suffering, loss of life, loved ones, cancers, aging, it is all working together for your good if you are his.
God is not wasting any bit of it. And I know some of you have got age things that if it's not humiliating to you, it's frustrating and it's hard to sleep and it's just on and on and on and on. I don't believe any little bit of it is going to be wasted. And God is going to meet you in all of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the hard parts that tell us we're not like you. We don't see what you see. We can't see what you see. You're so other than us. God, give us the grace to walk with you in the midst of the hard things in our lives. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.